yeah, I think it was the best bit was probably like after we'd actually launched, just like that night, just being like, holy shit, like, <laughs> it's like six satellites in orbit and we put them there and it worked. The idea for Endeavour kind of came out of a frustration of the lack of development in British rocketry. There aren't a lot of ways that students can actually contribute to the space and satellite sector. With that, was the inspiration to start Asteria, right? And to actually build their own sort of little space program. Hi, I'm Kim. I'm Murray. And this is Scotland's Secret Space Race. How are you doing, Kim? I am great. We have got a cracker today, don't we? It's a fantastic one. I think we've got a, an episode which is really going to capture people's imaginations, actually. Yeah, this was a story, the kind of story that a journalist dreams of, of just this wonderful beginning, middle <laughs> and end that you couldn't quite predict. <laughs> so this week I wanted to have a look at the makers. We've talked a lot in the past about data that you can get from satellites, but I thought, why not go to the people who are actually building those satellites and hear a little bit more about their story and then also think about the future so we have these great aspirations for the space sector here in scotland and across the uk and of course the the people who are going to meet those aspirations are going to be the companies of the future so i wanted to speak to a couple of student groups as well and find out what they're up to mm, we're doing a bit of stargazing and forward looking and predicting which is always fun in a covid era where you don't really know what's going to happen from one day to the next exactly so who, who, who are we bringing on first then, Kim? So our first guest is Tom Walkinshaw, who is the chief executive of Alba Orbital. Gosh, how long did we speak to him for? Uh, we could have made a whole series just based on I his think story. It was, it, was, it, was, it was an hour in the end, wasn't it? We... <laughs> I think it was close to it, yeah. So I've got an editing job on my hands. Um, no, it was a fantastic story about a guy who left university, was in a job that wasn't particularly inspiring him, and he thought, I want to work in space, and he made it happen. And it's so inspiring. You just, I just, I'm so excited to share his story. It's fantastic, isn't it? And, it, and it's not just the case of, I want to work in space, let's see what job are out there he actually just went to his bedroom and just started making satellites and you wouldn't really think that a story like that would have a happy ending but he's now running a company launching satellites into in space and i think that's a uh, incredibly captivating story isn't it it really is and the fact that he started with cardboard boxes and ended up with them um, six satellites being launched from a new zealand <laughs> spaceport it's just you actually it sounds like a movie and i wouldn't be surprised if it turns into one one day but we got them first so let's share the fantastic story of tom walkinshaw from alma orbital so yeah we started in um started my bedroom because we didn't have an office and i was still working full-time elsewhere in sort of a different sector so i graduated in 2011 from business studies at university classic Caledonian, didn't really think of career in the finance world was really for me after about a year of being there. I was really interested in space. Yeah, just back then, I think like that was around the time that Falcon 1 had got to orbit, uh, not, not too long before that. And it kind of seemed that it was a lot of kind of interest in commercialization of space, albeit in the last sort of seven, eight years, that's really kind of come on a lot more. But certainly back then, it seemed like it was the sort of the start of that sort of movement. And was really interested in joining the space industry. I was trying to get a job in the industry, but there really wasn't many jobs in Glasgow at that point in time. So really the only viable option was to start a company and start a degree. So I thought, well, why not? So the first year since we incorporated, I was, I was still working pretty much another job. I was ramping down my hours and trying to figure out what we were going to do. End of September, sort of October 2013 is when I went full time. And we've done a Kickstarter campaign for the month of October. 
in 2013 and I went out to Silicon Valley for the first time around then as well and then uh, I haven't worked for an employer since then so <laughs> it's been okay I guess. So yeah. you were in finance and you thought nah I'm going to make satellites. Well pretty much I mean I think when you're a graduate you just kind of take any job going when you're a business graduate around but then well, certainly for me I didn't have that many options to be honest I mean it was very difficult time for graduates uh, it was not long after the, the crash and business studies is a weird degree you get genetic skills you don't get any sort of specialisms and I think when you're starting out in your career you're you know you have no experience so you, you can't play on that it's hard hard pitch to get people to give you an interesting gig. So how did you yeah. go about building a satellite were you involved in the engineering or did you work with someone who had that expertise did you figure it out for yourself i am i guess largely self-taught um i mean I, i've designed the satellite essentially so like all our products i mean i've got a pretty heavily heavy influence on them certainly unicorn one unicorn two and alpod are sort of my babies and even Alpha connect now as well but yeah now the good thing is like i have a team of engineers who are all specialists in their, their area of expertise and that really helps improve the quality of the product a lot so it's kind of having an idea of what I think we should build and, and whatnot and um, sort of bounce around and then we iterate a bunch of times and, and hopefully the final product can come out of that. It's for something like we're, we specialize in polycubes and really the, there is no one else in the world who's done it as long as I have so I've kind of became a weird one of the sort of leaders in that community because I've been doing it since before it was you know cool to do that sort of thing. Do you reckon you could roll back a little bit and talk a little bit more about the satellites themselves and give people a picture of exactly how how large they are? Yeah oh, absolutely we specialize in PicoSats so we, we're probably the world leading PicoSat company in my opinion we've got the most advanced PicoSat platform in the world called Unicorn 2 so PicoSats are anywhere between 100 grams and one kilogram um, so these are kind of new in the space world they've been the concept's been around for a long time but it's never really been that viable to build these things if you kind of take take a step back or two the, the history of space and particularly in the last 30 40 years of small satellites it really started in the 80s with SSTL so sorry satellite technology and they created these small satellites which sort of washing machine class 100 kilograms sort of platform in the early 2000s the CubeSat came along and there's a few kind of important things that happened with CubeSat there was an agreed upon standard or mechanical standard as to what a CubeSat is and the CubeSat's a 10 centimeter cube goes in the dispenser so the, the cool thing about the dispenser is that you decouple the risk uh, of the satellite to the launch vehicle uh, certainly the pot cubes are the sort of furthest ahead by most metrics they're five centimeter cubes and the reason they're called pocket cubes is they're initially concept is you they can fit in your pocket and you get single pocket cubes which are, are five centimeter cubes you get double pocket cubes which are five by five by ten you get triple pocket cubes which are five by five by just over 15. Uh, and that's the sort of concept, essentially. Sort of the main driver for the quality cubes is um, the low-cost standardization. So we put people in orbit from 25k euro, uh, which is super low-cost if you want to put a satellite in orbit. And, and how long does it take to actually do that? What's the uh, the process? Uh, how long would it take you to go from sort of design, build, and, and having it actually orbiting the Earth? I mean, to go to the ground to orbit is only nine minutes. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's well, relatively easy. It's easy for us because we didn't have to design the rocket. I mean, it kind of varies. I mean, people have built them in weeks. I mean, I think there's one team built it in eight weeks and flew it. Um, but generally speaking, you're probably like a year or two. There hadn't been a launch in about six years for the Pocube standards until we launched in December there. Uh, so we launched six satellites into orbit from uh, New Zealand. 
Um, so that's quite a big deal for the community. We've got another, I think, 11 satellites going up in December this year on Falcon 9. So we're really starting to get the trains going. We're hoping to potentially go twice next year. And really the final aspect is just licensing. So licensing takes a period of time. That's probably actually the longest lead time of anything at this point in time. Yeah, yeah that's that's one thing we, we heard at the beginning of this series from Ivan McKee. The, uh, the legislation policy frameworks is the, the one thing that keeps coming up time and time again. That, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm talking on uh, Kim. Let's give, give Kim some uh, airtime because I know she's got loads of questions for you. Always, always. How did you build your first satellite? What did you use? Where did you get the parts from and what did it do? Um, well, it depends what you call a satellite. I mean, I think the first frame was cardboard and then I think the next one was card and then the next one was plastic and then the next one was aluminium. Yeah, I mean, I joined like a local makerspace. So there's, you know, it's this sort of thing called the maker movement where people get sort of stuck into a kind of community club. And at the time in Glasgow, there was a sort of maker lab. They were all about sort of digital fabrication, like lasers, CNCs. I was there for quite some time in the early days prototyping, the early, early pop-ups. And then you're just kind of an evolution, really. Unicorn 1 just is sort of... We kind of started off with subsystems. So we started off with a frame and then a radio that we bought in. And then we designed our first power system. And then we designed our own onboard computer. And then laterally we designed our own radio. And then... We kind of went to our sort of second and third generation architecture. So Unicorn, there's kind of before Unicorn One, there was a lot of kind of components and subsystems. Then Unicorn One came around, and it was our first full satellite. But we we only had two or three engineers, so it wasn't really that great a product. And then Unicorn Two, we had about eight or nine engineers working on that, and, and that's really a huge step forward on, on Unicorn One to the point where we have a really capable spacecraft now that's been to orbit and worked. So, And you yeah. mentioned crowdfunding. Did you try any other investment routes? How did you find explaining the technology and what you were doing to potential investors? Yeah, I mean, definitely not a lot of appetite in Scotland for investing in an early stage space company. I mean, certainly done it in spite of the investment landscape here, for sure. We did actually raise any investment, to be honest. We've done it primarily through sales, government support with the European Space Agency, you know, some R&D sort of tax breaks and stuff you can get, launch sales, satellite sales, when I have ground stations and things like that to sell. So like we've been quite lucky in the sense that we haven't had to like raise external equity. At this stage in the game, we're, we're working on some really early stage technology that I think could really transform the world in, in crazy ways. And, and we're sort of quite quite advanced on that and it's nice to have kind of longer time horizons that and see. any any sneak previews on the world changing technology yeah i mean like come come check out our factory i mean i mean i certainly think unicorn 2 is i mean unicorn 2 is the world's um most advanced picosat um so we've got the world's smallest attitude determination control system so basically really miniaturized um way of, of pointing a spacecraft which is super advanced we got a quadruple deployable solar panel. So I think we're the first organization in the world to deploy a quadruple deployable solar panel on a PicoSat or a NanoSat. So for the uh, for the non-specialist listening, what, what are the implications then for the satellite of having that? Does it presumably it changes its power output? Yeah, I mean, we have like 20 watt peak power on a, a Pico satellite. So it's, it's a pretty insane large amount of power for the size of the spacecraft, power to weight. On something like a unicorn is, is pretty insane and that's really like one of the core metrics for us is it's making it very power efficient i mean compared to other pocket cubes for example we're about 
at least 10x the power, if not 20x the power. It, it and would, and this, this is this is due to this technology which you've developed in-house? Yeah, we've developed this sort of big, large, uh, large deployable solarity, um, which gives us the juice to run the ADCS. So like w without the big wing, you can't run the pointing system. We can point things at cameras, for example. That's one of the missions where we'll be flying pretty soon is a Unicorn 2E, which is um, an optical mission. So, you know, we're trying to get an image from a pocket, which would be the world's smallest spacecraft to get an image down. That's so exciting. And, you know, everyone always quotes this, Glasgow makes more satellites than anywhere else in Europe. You've obviously seen a lot of change over the last eight years. How do you see the Scottish space ecosystem now? Yeah, I mean, I actually came up with that in 2014 and started off that scene. So I read an article where someone said they didn't know where it came from, and I'm pretty sure I came up with it. It started off the Chinese whispers. Um, <laughs> Has anyone actually checked this back? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, like, it's something that should be checked. Certainly in Europe, I think we're a top producer. I mean, Spire, obviously, have a very high production rate. We're definitely holding our own up there with the sort of top two or three cities, I think. Yeah, I totally forgot your question as well. <laughs> okay, uh, well, if you, were, if you were going to go for investment now, do you think you'd have less education and more support to do? Well, yeah, the ecosystem in Scotland, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's cool there's, like, more people starting companies. Um I do think a lot of people that are starting the companies don't maybe appreciate the difficulty in starting companies. <laughs> I think you mean like companies generally or like a satellite company? Uh, with anything space related. I mean, like, yeah. you know, it is cool that people are trying stuff. But, I mean, let's see who's still standing in five years. I mean, that's kind of like, it is really, really difficult to build any company. And to build a company in space is, in my opinion, more difficult in many ways because... You, you have such a long lead time. We took us like seven years to get to orbit, and you know, like, how do you not die? You know, in that period of time. I mean, you know, it's very difficult. So yeah, well, possibly so, a controversial question, but what what do you make then of what's going on with the uh, UK uh, investment in OneWeb? <laughs> yeah, all the good questions. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess this. The positive answer is these governments invest in his base. Um, <laughs> the frank answer? Well, I mean, like, OneWeb kind of looks like it's done at this point. I mean, I mean they went bankrupt. Um, so for, for anyone who, who doesn't know, so this is like a low-Earth orbit uh, communications constellation, right? But it's now the pro proposition is to retrofit it for GPS. I heard that, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> to, to replace our lost access from Galileo. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's down to politics in the day. I mean, I think anyone who's seen Sally's in space obviously knows that it's just not a great idea. Um, you know, to go, you know, communication satellites are communication satellite and it's in a certain orbit and does a certain thing. And, you know, obviously GPS satellite is in, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. It's like making your apple into a pear. I mean, an apple is an apple and a pear is a pear. And what do you think about launch capability in Scotland? Would that suit you? Would it make things easier? <laughs> well, if the price was right and it was reliable, then uh, we'd launch from anywhere. I mean, we launched from New Zealand, which is like trying to find like harder place to get to like from Scotland. I mean, it's like literally the other side of the planet. It would be cool, obviously, to have local capability, but I guess I, I kind of don't want it. Like, if it doesn't happen, I don't want everyone... To, the launch market is so competitive and there's like so many good options just now 
compared to where it was maybe five years ago that it's going to be super tricky for those companies to kind of get big and get to orbit you know like i often worry that like we get all our hopes up and then it never happens and, and then like you know everyone's goes oh that was an abject failure when really we have like this massive production house in glasgow all these spacecrafts and you know it's like if it, if it happens it'll be cool but we're not like assuming it's going to happen and, and you know we're we know how difficult it is to get to our but good good luck to people trying it but i mean it's not something we're necessarily banking on it's interesting isn't it launch is always the thing that people focus on and i think that's part of the reason that nobody knows very much about the scottish space ecosystem because so many people just think launch they think man on the moon they think human space flight when as you obviously have just told us there's so much going on in other parts of it so what do you think people should know about scottish space um that we're we do a lot of it, I guess. I mean, I, I mean, I'm obviously in the satellite side of things, so I mean, I mean, I'm quite into the tangible stuff, which is let's let's fly spacecraft um, and let's get stuff in orbit. That's something actually Scotland's pretty good at, to be honest. You know, we're, we're one of the best places in the world for that. You know, actually, if you think about it, there's probably more expertise in Glasgow and building cubesats and pod cubes than like any other city in the world, which is kind of nuts if you think about it. It's a high density of people within about a square mile of the city centre that. Oh yes, Sally. Um, probably more than anywhere else in the world, which is kind of cool. I guess not a lot of people see satellites. Obviously, they're they're hidden. Um, we, we run a workshop annually uh, at Glasgow Uni. So we have the Pocket Developer Conference, and we have like open days and stuff. So if people are interested, they can like sort of buy a ticket, come along, and and go an open house as well. If people want to come and check out the the unicorn factory and see what's going on there is it well known i mean it's hard for me to tell because i've been doing it for eight years but it does kind of feel that more people are curious more people ask questions and what's really really interesting is that what you said is, is mad that we've got this expertise in Glasgow. but i don't know to a certain extent why why is it why is it so mad i think is it, do we have a slight strange sense of low expectation sometimes about what we can do and and our capabilities i mean do, do you think that's true and if so what can we do to address it why we have it's just kind of it's just a kind of in my opinion a kind of flux set of events that happened really we had craig who started clay space in 2005 he just happened to move back and he, he just happened to be questing your guy sstl and he wanted to start a company and that started the company alboa like it was seven years after him um we were the second company in glasgow building spacecraft and then subsequently clay space worked with spire and then that brought in spire and then they don't really do so much work together, but like they have their own sort of dedicated facilities. It's just kind of, I think it's just a case of people who are interested in it, try and build stuff. And then other people see that and either get attracted to move here or, which is kind of the natural way, like a technology ecosystem emerges over time. You have people who like learn skills and we, you know, we've had people leave as well to go and do their own thing. And If you were explaining to someone what you do, what would you say is the most fun part of what you do? Well, I mean, like the launch was pretty fun in retrospect. Um, no, the time was really stressful. It was more just relief when it got to orbit more than anything. I mean, I mean, I guess I've never really chatted publicly about it, but there was like a lot of dramas before the launch. Like there's a real chance that we weren't going to fly for a number of reasons. And, and NASA kicked off basically about three days before the launch and like, the US military kicked off. So I like had to like go and sort of somewhat testify in front of them to calm them all down. What and, was uh, what was the concern? Uh, the NASA concern was uh, human safety and ISS and trackability of our space objects, um, which is basically BS. Essentially, like it's they, they they've all been tracked every day multiple times for best part of a decade. 
So essentially, I had to convince NASA they were wrong, which wasn't really, you know, if you're like two days before. Yeah, that done before breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it's always tricky with these things because they don't know me from anyone else, and I'm just trying to sort of make sure that, like, you know, we have a future and stuff, and that our community has a future. And unfortunately, with some conditions, like we had to do enhanced sort of shading, and we had to do a bunch of other things to try and appease certain U.S. government bodies, but. Um, Fortunately, the, the FCCs, uh, the FAA rather, signed off the launch license. Yeah, I think it was the best bit was probably like after we'd actually launched and it's like just like that night, just been like, holy shit, like <laughs> it's like six satellites in orbit and we put them there and it worked. I mean, it, like you, you never really know exactly like what's going to work and what's not going to work, but we had a, a pretty successful first out. And, and now for Alba, I think it's really just about doing it regularly, you know, like can we just become this regular company that, you know, that flies more and more satellites and does more and more things and, and increases the capability and the, you know, the quality and the, the use cases for these spacecraft. And, and, and I think we've made that a thing now. We, we're flying 11 this year and hopefully we'll, we'll fly more next year. And we're launching from Cape Canaveral, so... That'll be a good trip. I mean, yeah, hopefully we're allowed to go. It'd be awesome to go and see the launch. I mean, we, I didn't get to see the launch last time. We just, like, live, watched the live stream. It would be cool to go back to New Zealand and fly some more. I think in the short term, though, SpaceX are, are being pretty aggressive on their their, their pricing and, and certainly for the R type of missions, Falcon seems to be the way to go. Well, that was absolutely fantastic to hear. And I, I love the idea that we can go ahead and build this industry right here in Scotland. I mean, we're hearing so much now about bringing supply chains uh, back into country after the after effects of the uh, coronavirus uh, and an increasingly hostile China. So and that's fantastic to hear. And I think as an individual, he's an incredibly inspirational character. I think you, you loved so that as humble. well, didn't you? I did. I he was just... It's, it's, it's so humble and it, it, it's just such a fantastic story. It was wonderful. Just for the justification for doing this podcast, really, is that there's so much going on and the fact that you know, people don't know about this is a, is a real shame. And I guess testament to that is the fact that so many people are now listening in to find out about what's going on. So I do wish Tom and everybody else, of course, all the, all the best with what they're doing. But it, it does look like he's going from success to success. Yeah. And to go from making a cardboard satellite in your bedroom to launching from Cape Canaveral. I mean, it's just the greatest story, isn't it? If you can dream big, here's an example of what could happen if you could actually just dream for something to happen and make it make it so. Going from your bedroom to Cape Canaveral in those few short years, that is an incredible achievement. Uh, yeah, hats hats off to him. But he's he's going mm. uh, going good guns, isn't he? Um, he uh, is. Cardboard. Uh, Google Cardboard made the original um, VR headsets did, did you remember those right? yeah because you, you could put your mobile phone in a um and a piece of cardboard from google and experience a vr environment so maybe maybe there is something about um early stage uh, technology development using cardboard well, do you know what? I have been doing a lot of crafting over the last three months while homeschooling my two children. So you never know. <laughs> you you haven't you haven't shown me yet your uh, your downloaded images, uh, satellite right. images. So I don't, I certainly don't believe you started making satellites. 
we'll do first things let's do first things first we made some pretty cool robots but no no satellites definitely not um and other people who are making satellites not quite from cardboard but using uh, engineering components which are surprisingly freely available are two of the student groups at edinburgh university that you know i do know both groups and um yeah obviously from uh, from being in edinburgh but of course there's uh, stuff going on across scotland uh, strathclyde for instance um building uh, satellites but but these guys that we know uh, Asteria have uh, got grand aspirations uh, first off to to launch a weather balloon as a first mission building up a bit of space heritage and then uh, launching their own satellites so um, yeah, they've got the work cut out for them but they uh, they have the drive the determination and uh, and a growing team to actually be able to do this so uh, we're going to speak to Annie who's a chief executive of Asteria and find out more about these plans. My name is Ani. I am the co-founder and managing director for Asteria's Space and Satellites, the uh, UK and Scotland's first entirely student-led satellite development team. At the end of my uh, second year, I, I, I realized that uh, there aren't a lot of ways that students can actually contribute to the space and satellite sector. There are a few rocketry teams, um, a few um, academic-led uh, satellite teams although not in Edinburgh. Of course, uh, with that uh, was the inspiration to start Asteria, right? And to actually build their own sort of little space program uh, here uh, within the university uh, for satellite development. It's certainly uh, working with the people, particularly uh, very enthusiastic students involved um, and the industry as well. Uh, they've been uh, phenomenally helpful. We recently partnered with a, a company up on the uh, Pig Center for Innovation. Um, they're called Responsive Access. They basically could try to secure um, a um, orbital launch with them for uh, December of uh, 2021. So our primary goal is, is to develop a satellite called uh, Oracle One. It'll be a, an Earth-observing educational nano-satellite, uh, focusing specifically on environmental applications. Uh, for launch, of course, it, in December of uh, 21. It followed a fairly rigorous uh, uh, scientific mission focusing around environmental applications like flood detection, light detection, and potentially monitoring the spread of diseases. Our initial plan uh, was to have, uh, um, have a combination of uh, a corporate sponsorship as, as well as a university sponsorship. Um, however, because of the COVID-19 situation, that's less likely um, to become a reality. So at the moment, we're being a bit creative in the way we actually get our funds. We're opening up a, a crowdsourcing campaign so the public in the UK can contribute towards this project. And we're also reaching out to philanthropists um, in the UK and Scotland who'd like to actually uh, catalyze um, uh, this growing interest in the uh, University of Edinburgh. At the moment, roughly about £70,000. It's very ambitious, of course, right? Uh, however, satellite development is fairly, it's not a very um, inexpensive uh, um, ambition, of course. However, uh, the impact of, uh, of actually having a satellite uh, built by students here in Edinburgh for environmental applications can go beyond the roof, I think. Asteria certainly has uh, given me some um, invaluable experience and context uh, for the Scottish and UK uh, satellite sectors. Asteria is, 
is divided up into three sections. There's a scientific division, there's an operations division, and there's an engineering division. At the moment, actually, I'm operating out of my parents' garage, and it's supposed, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> so uh, here I am. Engineering division focuses specifically on the actual hardware of the satellite, where all of the components actually fit together, how to actually uh, negotiate your uh, communications bandwidth, uh, so on and so forth. Um, the scientific mission determines the actual uh, purpose of the satellite, right? Uh, what kind of a, a, a sensor uh, these satellite will use? What kind of a scientific um, uh, conclusion will the satellite actually give us? And the uh, operations division actually uh, focuses on the actual launching of the satellite, licensing aspect of the satellite, uh, and the funding of the satellite as well. Our first satellite uh, will be a 3U, uh, what's called a CubeSat. Um, basically, the uh, basic unit of a CubeSat comes in a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter cube. When I say 3U, this means three of these cubes effectively stacked on top of each other. Excellent. And I wish Annie all the best. I love how driven he is and the fact he's in his going into his fourth year at university and it doesn't seem to be holding him back from starting a space company, which just, again, shows you anything is possible. It, it is. And uh, again, great testament to what's going on here at large. The fact that you can start taking off the shelf components, putting things together, specify a mission and then go ahead and, and make it. So, of course, wishing him all the best. But we've, we've also got uh, Neil Buchanan coming on who is the founder and project lead at Endeavour. So they're in a slightly different stage of the space chain and they're looking at um, rocket development. So let's hear from Neil. My name is Neil Buchanan and I'm the team lead for Endeavour, the University of Edinburgh's rocketry and space technologies team. To give a quick bit of background about myself, so I've just finished my third year of mechanical engineering at the university and the idea for Endeavour kind of came out of a frustration of the lack of development in British rocketry. So we haven't really made that much progress as a nation in the past 50 years for launch vehicles. There's a lot of good stuff happening as of late but when you look to further afield you look at what's happening abroad with Space Explorer Origin and of course the institution that is NASA. Britain is always very much lagged behind. We've done great with satellites, we've gone great with actual space industry jobs but in terms of actually getting the stuff there it's very much lacking and I feel like a big problem of that is the lack of experience and interest at a grassroots level and we've really got the chance to change that here of Endeavour I feel especially in Scotland where so many things are happening right now with new space companies opening up and space ports in the north and I really feel like we're sort of at this crescendo where we can take advantage of this updraft of serious interest and investment in the space industry and really use it to propel students ideas and harness that innovation and for people who might think that oh i mean if big companies can't even do it then how could students even stand a chance i i beg to differ we have many amazing projects here at our university i've been lucky to be part of some of them and the one thing that they all have in common is just the sheer astounding talent that students are able to apply to projects not because they're paid not because they're on the clock but because they're truly passionate and devoted to a cause 
So I feel like utilizing that, harnessing that for a new part of the university, working with aerospace technologies, is an incredibly interesting thing to do. And so far, we've got a good amount of support. We're a team of around about 25 undergrads and postgraduates at the university from all kinds of disciplines. And we're sort of split up at the moment into three main work streams. So we have the Darwin project, which is working with advanced sounding rockets, effectively kind of scaled down launch vehicles that are you know capable of being built at university and not huge factories. The idea for this project is kind of to test as much as we can and advance our research as quickly as possible on smaller vehicles. So for this year's rocket, which was actually meant to be launched around about now, but unfortunately, of course, COVID took a big sledgehammer to those plans as well as many other things in the world. The idea was to really harness an air brake system. So looking at technology like that this early on would normally be seen as madness, but we strive to the challenge. We really want to rise up and invest and work on as many advanced technologies as soon as possible, as early on as possible, while of course staying sensible. And we also have the Maxwell project where we're currently developing a 3D printed liquid bipropellant rocket engine. The idea for this is to run it on green fuels and truly like look to what the challenges of the future are. So if we're gonna be an interplanetary species, if rocket travel and space travel is gonna be much more common, emissions are gonna to start to, to rack up and the current fuels being used by the big players they're definitely not good for the environment. They're used in small quantities because there aren't that many rockets, but with a trajectory we're heading on, we need to start developing greener solutions. And the idea is to really bring that to Edinburgh, bring that research and embark on that early on to find better ways of doing things. And of course, we're aware that none of this really matters at the end of the day if there aren't people to carry on the torch for the future generation. So that's why we also put a big emphasis on the outreach program. Luckily enough, last year we were able to launch a few model rockets in Hollywood Park under the shadow of Arthur's seat, or with the correct permissions, of course. And that was a really engaging event for the community, for our university, and it's incredible to see what passion comes from these kind of things and the true excitement that we can generate. And this is something we really intend to continue in the future as we look to other projects in our outreach series, looking at DIY YouTube videos for kids stuck at home, and also on the technical side with more advanced systems that are capable of landing autonomously using thrust vector control and also trying to integrate something so that one day you know the dream of being able to touch the boundaries of space becomes a lot more realistic but to make sure that whichever path we go on we're doing it in a way that's fully conscious of usability and making sure that the future is green for you know Scottish aerospace and British rocketry. If you'd be looking to support us or get involved, please do reach out. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Endeavor Rockets. So exciting. I feel like we keep using all these superlatives as well when we're talking about them and then running out of words. We are starting to run out of superlatives now, so maybe <laughs> we should just talk about it in more mundane terms, like the, the, yes. the just standard. But this, I do think that's actually a very, very good point, that we're getting very, very excited about space and satellites, but with the aspirations being uh, developed and the goals set out by uh, Scottish and UK governments, it is really going to be something which is a lot more commonplace in the economy mm. so hearing about people going to work in the space sector in scotland really shouldn't be a surprise anymore and, and i think uh, that will increasingly be the case as these companies develop and uh, more jobs come online um in the scope of this podcast i think it's important that we just tell the world what uh, whoever's listening what's going on here 
and make it increasingly an attractive place for investors to come uh, and see growth prospects for the future. Yep. We're, we've got a big job in our hands here. We're just, um, you know, telling a huge story to the world. But I think I'm having a great time doing it. Yeah, well, I mean, like uh, to, to find out something as significant as uh, what, what Neil's doing only fairly uh, recently and bringing that to the podcast has been fantastic as well. And I mean, obviously have people like Tom who are willing to not only be as busy as they are to uh, develop such a company as Albert Orbital, but also then to take an hour out to come and speak to us has been fantastic. So it's just that enthusiasm that infectious enthusiasm in, in such an exciting domain it's brilliant I, I absolutely love that i can tell i can tell and if you're super excited about space as well you can always drop us a line on twitter he's at murray b collins and i'm at kim McAllister. thanks for listening 